Chapter Forty One of Our Vanishing Wildlife. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Our Vanishing Wildlife by William T. Hornaday. Chapter Forty One Teaching Wildlife Protection to the Young. Thousands of busy and birded men and women are today striving hard, early and late, to promote measures that will preserve the valuable wildlife of the world. They desire to leave to the boys and girls of tomorrow a good showing of the marvelous bird and animal forms that make the world beautiful and interesting. They are acting on the principle that the wildlife of today is not ours to destroy or keep as we choose, but has been given to us in trust, partly for our benefit and partly for those who come after us and audit our accounts. They believe that we have no right to squander and destroy a wildlife heritage of priceless value, which we have done nothing to create, and which is not ours to destroy. Duty of Parents This being the case, it is very necessary that the young people of today should be taught, early and often, the virtue and the necessity of wildlife protection. There is no reason that the boy of today should not take up his share of the common burden, just as soon as he is old enough to wander alone through the woods. Let him be taught in precise terms that he must not rob birds' nests, and that he must not shoot songbirds, woodpeckers, and kingfishers with a twenty-two caliber rifle or any other gun. At this moment there lies upon my side table a vicious little twenty-two caliber rifle that was taken from two boys who were camping in the woods of Connecticut and amusing themselves by shooting valuable insectivorous birds. Now those boys were not wholly to blame for what they were doing but their fathers and mothers were very much to blame. They should have been taught at the parental knee that it is very wrong to kill any bird except a genuine game bird, and then only in the lawful open season. Those two fathers paid ten dollars each for having failed in their duty, and it served them right, for they were the real culprits. Small-caliber rifles are becoming alarmingly common in the hands of boys. Parents must do their duty in the training of their boys against bird-shooting. It is a very serious matter. A million boys who roam the fields with small rifles, without having been instructed in protection, can destroy an appalling number of valuable birds in the course of a year. Some parents are so slavishly devoted to their children that they wish them to do everything they please and be checked in nothing. Such parents constitute one of the pests of society, and a drag upon the happiness of their own children. It is now the bounden duty of each parent to teach each one of his or her children that the time has come when the resources of nature, and especially wild life, must be conserved. To permit boys to grow up and acquire guns without this knowledge is very wrong. THE DUTY OF TEACHERS AND SCHOOLS A great deal of nature study is being taught in the public schools of the United States. That the young people of our land should be taught to appreciate the works of nature, and especially animal life and plant life, is very desirable. Thus far, however, there is a screw loose in the system, and that is the shortage in definite positive instruction regarding individual duty toward the wild creatures, great and small. Along with their nature studies, all our school children should be taught, in the imperative mood, one, that it is wrong to disturb breeding birds or rob birds' nests, two, that it is wrong to destroy any harmless living creature not properly classed as game, except it to be to preserve it in a museum, three, that it is no longer right for civilized man to look upon wild game as necessary food, because there is plenty of other food, and the remnant of game cannot withstand slaughter in that basis. 4. That the time has come when it is the duty of every good citizen, 
to take an active, aggressive part in preventing the destruction of wildlife and in promoting its preservation. 5. That every boy and girl over 12 years of age can do something in this cause. And finally, 6. That protection and encouragement will bring back the almost vanished birds. We call upon all boards of education, all principals of schools, and all teachers to educate our boys and girls, constantly and imperatively along these lines. Teachers, do not say to your pupils, it is right and nice to protect birds, but say, it is your duty to protect all harmless wild things, and you must do it. In a good cause there is great virtue in must. Really, we are losing each year an immense amount of available wildlife protection. The doctrine of imperative individual duty never yet has been taught in our schools, as it should be taught. A few teachers have, indeed, covered this ground, but I am convinced that their proportion is mighty small. Textbooks The writers of the Nature Study textbooks are very much to blame, because nine-tenths of the time this subject has been ignored. The situation has not been taken seriously, save in a few cases, by a very few authors. I am glad to report that in 1912 there was published a fine textbook by Professor James W. Peabody of the Morris High School, New York, and Dr. Arthur E. Hunt, in which from beginning to end the duty to protect wildlife is strongly insisted upon. It is entitled Elementary Biology, Plants, Animals, and Man. Hereafter, no zoological or nature study textbook should be given a place in any school in America unless the author of it has done his full share in setting forth the duty of the young citizen toward wild life. Were I a member of a board of education, I would seek to establish and enforce this requirement. Today, any author who will presume to write a textbook of nature study or zoology, without knowing and doing his duty toward our vanishing fauna, is too ignorant of wildlife and too careless of his duty toward it to be accepted as a safe guide for the young. The time for criminal indifference has gone by. Hereafter, everyone who is not for the preservation of wildlife is against it, and it is time to separate the sheep from the goats. From this time forth, the preservation of our fauna should be regarded as a subject on which every candidate for a teacher certificate should undergo an examination before receiving authority to teach in a public school. The candidate should be required to know why the preservation of birds is necessary, why the slaughter of wildlife is wrong and criminal, the extent to which wild birds and mammals return to us and thrive under protection, why wild game is no longer a legitimate food supply, why wild game should not be sold, and why the feathers of wild birds, other than game birds, never should be used as millinery ornaments. As sensible Americans, and somewhat boastful of our intelligence, we should put the education of the young in wildlife protection on a rational business basis. State Efforts In several of our states, systematic efforts to educate children in their duty toward wildlife are already being made. To this end, an annual bird day has been established for statewide observance. This splendid idea is now legally in force in the following states— California, Connecticut, Delaware, Illinois, Louisiana, Minnesota, Ohio, and Wisconsin. Bird Day is also more or less regularly observed, though not legally provided for, in New York, Indiana, Colorado, and Alabama, and locally in some cities of Pennsylvania. Usually the observance of the day is combined with that of Arbor Day, and the date is fixed by proclamation of the governor. Alabama and Wisconsin regularly issue elaborate and beautiful Arbor and Bird Day annuals, and Illinois, and possibly other states, have issued very good publications of this character. The Phillips Educational Campaign for the Birds 
Quite recently there has come under my notice an episode in the education of school children that has given the public profound satisfaction. I cite it here as an object lesson for Pan America. In Carrick, Pennsylvania, just across the Monongahela River from the city of Pittsburgh, lives John M. Phillips, state game commissioner, nature lover, sportsman, and friend of man. He is a man who does things and gets results. Goat Mountain Park, 450 square miles in British Columbia, today owes its existence to him, for without his initiative and labor it would not have been established. It was the first game preserve of British Columbia. Three years ago, Mr. Phillips became deeply impressed by the idea that one of the best ways in the world to protect the wildlife, both of today and the future, would be in teaching school children to love it and protect it. His fertile brain and open checkbook soon devised a method for his home city. His theory was that by giving the children something to do, not only in protecting but in actually bringing back the birds, much might be accomplished. In studying the subject of bringing back the birds, he found that the Russian mulberry is one of the finest trees in the world as a purveyor of good fruit for many kinds of birds. The tree does not resemble our native mulberry, but is equally beautiful and interesting. The fruit is not a long berry, nor is it of a purple color, but it grows from buds on the limbs and twigs, something after the manner of the pussy willow. It is smaller, of light color, and has very distinct flavor. The most striking peculiarity about the fruit is that it keeps on ripening during two months or more, new berries appearing daily while others are ripening. This is why it is such good bird food. Nor is it half bad for folks, for the berries are good to look at and to eat, either with cream or without, and to make pies that will set any sane boy's mouth a-watering at sight. Erasmus Wilson Everyone knows the value of sweet cherries, both to birds and to children. Mr. Phillips decided that he would give away several hundred bird boxes, and also several hundred sweet cherry and Russian mulberry trees. The first gift distribution was made in the early spring of 1909. Another followed in 1910, but the last one was the most notable. On April 11, 1912, Carrick had a great and glorious bird day. Mr. Phillips was the author of it, and Governor Tenor the finisher. On that day occurred the third annual gift distribution of raw materials designed to promote in the breasts of 2,000 children a love of birds and an active desire to protect and increase them. Mr. Phillips gave away 500 bird boxes, 500 sweet cherry trees, and 200 mulberry trees. The sun shone brightly. 500 flags waved in Carrick. The governor made one of the best speeches of his life, and Erasmus Wilson, faithful friend of the birds, wrote this good story for the occasion for the Gazette Times of Pittsburgh. The governor was there, and the children, the bird boxes, and the young trees. And was there ever a brighter or more fitting day for a children and bird jubilee? The scene was so inspiring that Governor Tenor made one of the best speeches of his life. The distribution of several hundred cherry and mulberry trees was the occasion, and the beautiful grounds of the Roosevelt School, Carrick, was the scene. Mr. John M. Phillips, sane sportsman and enthusiastic friend of the birds, has been looking forward to this as the culmination of a scheme he has been working on for years, and he was more than pleased with the outcome. The intense delight it afforded him more than repaid him for all it has cost in all the years past. But it was impossible to tell who were the more delighted, he or the governor or the children, or the visitors who were so fortunate as to be present. County Superintendent of Schools, Samuel Hamilton, was simply a mass of delight. And how could he be otherwise, surrounded as he was by two thousand and more children fairly quivering with delight? 
Children will care for and defend things that are their very own, fight for them and stand guard over them. Realizing this, Mr. Phillips undertook to show them how they could have birds all their own. Being clever in devising schemes for achieving things most to be desired, he began giving out bird boxes to those who would agree to put them up, and to watch and defend the birds when they came to make their homes with them. And he found that no more faithful sentinel ever stood on guard than the boy who had a birdhouse all his own. Here was the solution to the vexed problem. Provide boxes for those who would agree to put them up, care for the birds, and study their habits and needs. The children agreed at once, and the birds did not object, so Mr. Phillips had some hundreds, four or five, bluebird and wren boxes constructed during the past winter. These were passed out some weeks ago to any boys or girls who would present an order signed by their parents, and countersigned by the principal of the school. He knows enough about a boy to know that he does not prize the things that come without effort, nor will he become deeply interested in anything for which he is not held more or less responsible. Hence the advantage of having him write an order, having it endorsed by his parents, and vouched for by his school principal. That he had struck the right scheme was proven by the avidity with which the girls and boys rushed for the boxes. The fact that a heavy rain was falling did not dampen their ardor for a moment, nor did the fact that they were tramping Mr. Phillips' beautiful lawn into a field of mud. Mr. Phillips, seeing the necessity of providing food for the prospective hosts of birds, and wishing to place the responsibility on the boys and girls, offered to provide a cherry-tree or mulberry-tree for every box erected, provided they should be properly planted and diligently cared for. This was practically the culmination of the most unique bird scheme ever attempted, and yesterday was the day set apart for the distribution of these hundreds of fruit-trees, the products of which are to be divided share and share alike with the birds. Nowhere else has such a scheme been attempted, and never before has there been just such a day of jubilee. The intense interest manifested by the children, and the earnest enthusiasm manifested, leaves no doubt about their carrying out their part of the contract. Up to date, 1912, Mr. Phillips has given away about 1,000 bird-boxes, 1,500 cherry and Russian mulberry trees, and transformed the schools of Carrick into seething masses of children militantly enthusiastic in the protection of birds, and in providing them with homes and food. As a final coup, Mr. Phillips has induced the city of Pittsburgh to create the office of city ornithologist at a salary of $1,200 per year. The duty of the new officer is to protect all birds in the city from all kinds of molestation, especially when nesting, to erect birdhouses, provide food for wild birds on a large scale, and report annually upon the increase or decrease of feathered residents and visitors. Mr. Frederick S. Webster, long known as a naturalist and practical ornithologist, has been appointed to the position, and is now on active duty. So far as we are aware, Pittsburgh is the first city to create the office of city ornithologist. It is a happy thought. It will yield good results, and other cities will follow Pittsburgh's good example. End of chapter 41